like to welcome everyone to the sixth of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and they're free and open to the public. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia and I'm gonna serve as the host for these discussions. The link to this discussion is the same every day. So if you found us through the Zoom link, you will find us here with the same link every weekday. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics. And please suggest yourself if you're a disaster expert and wanna join the conversation. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. That's Slow Disaster Podcast. I will also make the link available via Twitter at US of Disaster. Tomorrow's guest is Andrew Revkin. Andy Revkin is a pathbreaking environmental journalist and director of the new initiative on communication and sustainability at Columbia University's Earth Institute. Andy Revkin has written on climate change for more than 30 years, mostly for the New York Times. I'm really excited to talk to Andy tomorrow about the ways that he sees the pandemic changing science reporting, how it's done, but also the ways that it may be changing science itself in these weird and socially distanced times. As of today, there are globally 372,563 confirmed cases of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 266,000 cases when I did the last of these calls on Friday. 41,708 of those cases are now in the United States, up from 16,638 confirmed cases on Friday. I want to share another statistic here before we get started, coming again from the, the Hopkins uh, coronavirus site. 100,885,000 people are listed as recovered. And naturally, we should pay attention to the deaths and to the suffering, but I also don't want to lose sight of survivors. The work of psychologist Robert J. Lifton has been very much on my mind recently. He wrote a book in the 1960s called Death in Life, Survivors of Hiroshima. And in that book, he laid out what he called a way of thinking about the wisdom of the survivor. We know that survivors of COVID-19 have struggled. They struggled in isolation. They struggled in quarantine. Some of them struggled uh, to get tested. Um, they struggled with breathing. And survivors have moral authority. That's a really important aspect of disasters and disaster recovery is listening to survivors and listening to the wisdom that they have to share. I hope that we can listen to and empower survivors and that we don't um, treat them as somehow some forgettable uh, part of this disaster. Now, this is a transnational community of survivors. It's gonna be a big community when this is all over. I hope we can find ways to listen to them. Today, I'm going to speak with Gonzalo Basicalupe and also with Daniel Lawrence. And let me introduce Gonzalo first. He's a professor of counseling psychology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He leads the citizen education and governance team at the Research Center for Integrated Disaster Risk Management, SIGADEN, in Santiago, Chile. Gonzalo is also an artist and his work has been showcased at the 2018 exhibition Liminal Territory and the Cartographies of Bodies and Territories in January 
of 2019 at the PUC Innovation Center and the UC campus San Joaquin Library. Gonzalo, thank you so much for making time to visit with us today on COVID calls. Thank you, pleasure. So I want to make sure people know that they can ask questions in the chat. So please do fire away with your questions when you have those. And I guess, Gonzalo, I just want to start, if, if you wouldn't mind, just bring us up to speed on what's happening there in Chile. Yeah, uh, we are in the 740 cases, uh, second person officially uh, death because of COVID. We, um, I guess the big, big, big change um, was this weekend, uh, the government had a, sort of like accepted to have a dialogue with a larger group of people, experts, including the president of the medical association, who she actually has been a lead. Um, actually, I did send you the Twitter, her Twitter account. Um, and so, and also the Minister of Science, for the first time on Sunday, they had a meeting with the government uh, because in some way, until then, it all felt pretty non-transparent and how is it that science was linked to the decisions about what to do. Um, there's been a demand for large quarantines and which they've been recommended but not enforced. And so last night, actually, there was a curfew from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Um, now, that's one piece, but, but on the other hand, um, there's still very much a large lack of transparency around data. We, we, we don't have data about how many have been really tested and um, who is being tested and where. And, and in general, and a lot of us last week in particular um, wrote uh, for media in relationship to some communicational disorder. I mean, you know, pretty much all sort of different kinds of messages, very similar to what happens in the United States, in fact. Um, and even though I, I would say that we don't have this sort of mixed messages that come from those press conferences in the White House, mm. um, we do have a lot of that. And so it gets very confusing. The Minister of Health here might say one thing in the morning and then in the afternoon it changes. And that happened a lot last week, so it generated a lot of confusion. For instance, the issue of masks. Um, so, you know, and then a lot of us, and, and this is, you know, you see my activity in Twitter, it's been a lot around figuring out how do we bring the evidence mm -hmm. um, rather than the politics only into the decision-making process. Yeah. So where are you turning to for good, hard information right now? Is what you're describing sounds an awful lot like what we've been dealing with here in the United States, yeah, yeah, a lack yeah. of testing, many different yeah. voices, and a president yeah. who also... Um, doesn't yeah. use those press conferences in a way that you'd like to get the hard information we need. Yeah, yeah. So, so for everybody also, and I think that this is, you know, every epidemiology is local, is regional, is city-wise. You have to look at the, the context. And one of the things that we do need to look at is, you know, we were in large social political upheaval since October 18 last year. And so we, we've been five months in pretty much in a, I would say, you know, sort of similar to what happens in many countries. So, and then, you know, we had the largest uh, women's mobilization 15 days ago, which several of us were a little bit afraid that that would be a source of contagion. It seems that that was not the case. It was in Madrid actually, but not here because, you know, we came later to the game. Um, so I guess the sources are, you know, the president of the 
medical school and, 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 and some, um, I would say, young scientists who are working with data, trying to make sense of it. I, 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 you know, I, I did send you some information. I, I tend to, um, you know, pay attention to some of the people that I trust in the U.S., including several people that you follow, and, and, and trying to um, make sense of it here. I, I, in general, I have found that the disaster researchers here have not been on top of this. I mean, that, that somehow, even, and that our National Office of Emergency has not been involved at all in this process. So, and that responds to some turf around public health. My apologies. I couldn't hear what you said. Oops, what was that? <laughs> well, that was my phone acting up. Uh, we, have um, an, we have an AI that's not happy with us, but we don't know where it is. <laughs> I was saying, uh, oh, the, so I would say that the disaster community in, in, an in an interesting way have not been very involved because they see this a lot located in the Minister of Health, um, which is in, in some way very interesting. I mean, it, you know, the movement in the United States being moving around FEMA, and here it's being be moving it towards what it would be the equivalent of the HHS. I mean, the, and, and, and somehow it doesn't, they don't seem to talk to each other much. Um, and maybe because the emergency depends on the Department of the Interior, which right now is in the hands of a more moderate Minister of the Interior, comparison to a more right-wing kind of Minister of Health. So it's a, it's a mix of politics with some disciplinary things. And I think that maybe we make headways in the next few days into breaking those, I would call them disciplinary silos. Um, I think, you know, this is, this, the other context is, you know, Chile is a country of disasters. We, we are always struggling with disasters of all sorts, and you know that. Um, but somehow I, I think that it's very hard for people to deal with a national, global, a slow disaster, and, and as it develops, um, and maybe the closest comparison would be to what is happening in the zones of in sacrifice zones, mm. but because sacrifice zones are located in such, you know, in very specific places, um, the larger national consciousness is not there. And and, and right. interesting, the other thing is the epicenter. And this is probably the most important because I mean, two weeks ago, when two, two weeks and a half, three weeks ago, when they began to describe this, it, was, it is still in the, more, in the wealthier part of Santiago. Um, How do you, you account know, for that? Many of us, we predicted that the contagion would show up in private schools, and which it did. Yeah. And it has to do with you know, people traveling abroad after the summer, February is summer for us. Right. So again, it's local, it's regional, but you know, the epicenter, and in some way, I do believe that we should have closed the, you know, the, these particular cities, I mean, um, um, neighborhoods, and we would probably have been, you know, done a big, big dent to the contagion. Oh, I wanted to, there's a, so many issues I want to talk with you about. You, you mentioned the context of the democracy movement in the fall. I wonder if you can just, mm -hmm. can you give people just a little context of that and how that may be affecting public trust in right. these government agencies right now? So, so we are in the, well, now 
we are beginning the third year of Piñera, which is a right-wing sort of um, very much into the neoliberal kind of government that already um, had a very low approval rate. Mm. So low that at some point it got into like, I don't know, 6% or something, 8%, sorry, almost, almost close to <laughs> zero, <laughs> approaching zero. <laughs> Statistical error, you know, yeah. that was the joke kind of thing. But anyway, very low. Um, even the people that voted for him were not supporting him. So it's, it's very low. And, you know, when we say some people who didn't vote for him, even people who are even more right-wing, I mean, you know, they're really, uh, so, but what happens in the middle of October, there was a um, uprising of social movement, particularly first students, um, high school students actually, who protested the race in the subway um, tickets. And similar to, you know, that was imitated in New York a few weeks after. Right. Um, but that quickly turned into large mobilizations and we had a large, large um, march, October 25th, the largest ever in the country. And it really swiped the country, not just the capital. You know, the capital is 6.7 million is, and it concentrates the largest amount of people. I mean, of, you know, we are about 17 million. Um, and so that continued through until now, I mean, until this virus emerged. And so in some way, I think that a lot of people who were more informed or critical, they didn't believe that the virus was actually a real thing. In some ways, still people believe that it's sort of some sort of a conspiracy to flatten the, to, to, to destroy the movement. Um, of course, quickly that came, it's not the case. And, and, and so there is a complete lack of legitimacy from some ministers, um, particularly the, the health minister. I mean, he, he really is, a, he's the former director of the largest, most, you know, um, the wealthiest clinic in the country. He is a business person and he, he does say things that really are pretty arrogant and, you know, confrontatious. And he, he has a Twitter account where he says things that are, you know, Trump kind of, Mm. messages that really sort of like come from nowhere sometimes and so he alienate, has alienated a lot of people and i would say a lot of people who even work in his in his in the second the executive health where they are pre-qualified people i mean chile has a long standing public health tradition um which in some way been going down because of neoliberal you know economic rules and something what has happened in the United States too, of course. Um, so, um, in a way, it you know, calling for unity didn't necessarily work, and and they 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 they, they kept this at the beginning. They played uh, using the typical things like we know in the United States, and everything's fine, it's under control, etc., yeah. etc. Et but there was no, and I think that for a lot of folks in academia, for instance, you know, school starts in March. I mean. You know, our center had a big meeting, you know, like the annual meeting where everybody gets together and we do strategic planning, we have conversations. It's wonderful, but it happened, I don't know, um, sometime at the beginning of March. <laughs> you know, we were, trying to, we were trying to make sense of what had happened in October because it really, these, you know, created a lot of turmoil around our research work. We were really right. 
moving everybody to a more participatory process, et cetera, et cetera. And this so like exploded somehow in our hands. So it's, it's a, uh, so, so I think it's still a lot of people paralyzed. I mean, um, it's a, it's a, it's, it's sort of like a, um, burden of a burden, so to speak. It's amazing. I mean, you know, I've talked about this a lot, uh, in, in, in the way we think about resilience, which as a term has its uses, but I'm always so afraid that people want to drain the politics and the history out of resilience. And if you, if you can't yeah. account for what you've just described in Chile as a mitigating factor, whether or not the public is going to trust a minister of health, your resilience plan is no good as far as I'm concerned. Right. I mean, this is right. like really crucial to understand the history. There's something else you said I want to come back to. Um, also, you mentioned curfew. So you're under curfew right now. Uh, well, they, they set up curfew at night. Yeah. Um, and in some way, a lot of us, and I, you know, I would say it, it, there's, in some ways, it makes sense. Yeah. But at the same time, <laughs> so let's say the curfew, curfew is from 10 p.m., 5 a.m., which probably helps with moving stuff, cleaning, cleaning roads, um, doing some of the things that, that make it easier in terms of um, mitigating the contagion. But then the subway opens at 7 a.m. So today, there are large lines and people trying to get into the subway and the bus and whatever, you know, I mean, yeah. clearly, clearly setting up condition. You know, Monday of last week, they began immunization for the regular influenza. So they wanted to have everybody, as many people as possible, get their vaccine. And again, there were lines of people. Of course, they didn't do drive-through like in other places. They, you just, you know, so in some way, um, they might have interesting ideas that they can implement, and th they might even get the support of some people. They might, you know, they might not get enough resistance. Of course, there's some people who resisted, and but then it, the the negative externalities of those decisions are terrible. And you know, I even though um, I think a lot of people are willing to accept some draconian measures. But at the same time, you know, in Chile, we have 400,000 people without running water. Mm. So what are you gonna do about that? Or we have a lot of people who live in shanty towns, um, no, you know, um, regular, you know, services there. So how are, you know, how are we going to manage um, quarantine people, quarantine for so many weeks? As, or as whatever is needed, you know, it's, it's a is there any, yeah. is there any, I mean, I know you, you know, the 2010 earthquake provides some examples of, you know, disaster that cut across all sectors of, of society. Yeah. I mean, people, I think have tried to learn a lot from what happened in 2010. Are there useful lessons there we can pull into the pandemic? Yeah, well, I think that if you look at the maps, there's some maps of, how the contagion is spread and and clearly the subway, which is an amazing tool here for it, it becomes the way things, you know, how the transportation has, you know, and in the city and, and how it came from a particular area, the west, the northwest side of the city. Um, the, sorry, the, the, the northeast side of the city. Um, and now, in some way, I think that, so those folks are probably, because they're wealthier, they have more care to help care, maybe they will get it, and they will get the right treatment. They, we, 
you know, but right now you're starting to be, I mean, in fact, the two people have died, do not belong to the epicenter. So they didn't probably get the right medical care. So, so you, you're going to, you start seeing the inequality. I can quarantine myself, um, but, and there's a lot of already, you know, discuss of those people who don't, but a lot of people can't, just can't afford it. And there's no, there've been not real measures yet to support quarantine, you know, and even getting medical permission to stay home, you know, for people who might be, you know, might be suspected of having um, potentially the, the virus. There's all kinds of things that in some way, I think that that had to do with our legacy around dictatorship that it's harder to generate some very draconian measures like at the airport. I mean, it's complete chaos. And, you know, I arrived a week ago yeah. and it's just, you know, oh. mixing people from different planes, you know, the social distance was very hard. If you wanted to keep social distance, they would kind of like, you know, oh, I want you to sign this. I mean, it's like, you know, and what happens if they were to generate very militarized kind of thing, then people would start to protest. It's, 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 a, it's a very complicated dilemma. I, I think that maybe not everyone is too familiar with that. And it's worth just spending a couple of minutes. Again, when we talk mm -hmm. about things like a curfew, um, or you talk about things like a quarantine or, you know, more draconian measures coming from a central government. I mean, yeah. that still rings bells of the Pinochet regime for so many people. Yeah. Um, can you, I mean, can you say more about that? I mean, that's a, that's a the sort of lingering psychological impact of that. I mean, does it, does it actually yeah. affect yeah. the degree whether or not people will follow instructions of their government or it just leads to a general sort of unease across the so, land? So, so you're right. So, 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 I mean, if you compare to Italy or Spain, Spain, which I talked to friends and I actually talked to people in Bergamo and when, yeah. you know, you have a military and a police there who most generally are the people from the neighborhood. So you had Italian police coming and singing to people who are in curfew, you know. It, it's, it's a much more closer interaction, you know. Uh, and people are being directed and, you know, there's not someone with a big gun. So, so for us, curfew, there's, there's a military, you're not gonna go because someone can shoot you. So you cannot do that if you wanna care for people. So it, it's, 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 there's an inherent contradiction there. Um, so, and then, you know, the other thing is to how do you, you know, steer people into quarantine to do that, you have to really incentivize it. And that's not how policies work here. <laughs> mm. I mean, and, um, you know, the, 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 that, that's, that doesn't, you know, and you know, that what, one of the things that I think that is a large inheritance of what we have now in terms of inequality is that neighborhoods are completely um, segregated um, due to, you know, the economics. So, you know, in some way, I do think that they did not cordon, they did not close the wealthy neighborhoods because they would get people protesting around and then why us? Well, I, I can assure you, hmm. if this had started in the more in the less wealthy neighborhoods, the most vulnerable communities, they will have closed it. They will have media will have said, hey, we got to close with, you know, they would not have allowed people to come to work to the richer neighborhoods and stuff like that. So um, that's, the other thing is we, that I think that, that 
makes it very complicated in our psyche is that when there's a when there've been large disasters, you know, we are able to reach the other. I can go and see my parents. There's no social network. I mean, there's no public um, services that are gonna serve them. So it relies a lot on transgenerational solidarity. That's harder now because I have to take care of my health. How right. do I visit them? You know, how do I do the basic stuff? You know, and that's in some way very different um, this time. Uh, you cannot just decide to, oh, I'm gonna donate money for something. I mean, it's like we are all in it. It's, it's, a, it's a, an exchange um, relationship. And the other thing is until people don't see people dying, it, it is kind of like an unreal thing. And, and you know, for people like you and I, we are seen as crazy yeah. that we're worrying about something. And it turns out that maybe, I don't know, this hope magic works. And in 20 days, things seem to be all normal. They're gonna think that, oh, you all people who were talking about this, it wasn't so important, blah, blah, blah. Because in some way, I think that it is in some way an unreal, you cannot smell it. You, can, you it's like, yeah. I use the, the shit storm to, to explain to people, look, if you go out, it's like getting shit from everywhere. But yeah, but it's, you know, it's, you, you, there's no vision of it. Um, and that's, I think, makes it very hard. I mean, I, can, I know what it is to experience an 8.0 earthquake, but how, how can you explain that a microscopic something, dust somewhere is gonna get into your body? Yeah, it's a very hard risk communication problem for a disaster that primarily just occurs indoors and in places where you're not allowed to come in and start, you know, asking. I mean, we're, we're used to a sort of disaster journalism in which victims are available and ready to tell their stories. Right. I think that's why I right. wanted to right. also try to empower survivors in this, in this because yeah. I think we do need to hear from them that this is not um, something oh, but, that's but, just going to go away. But also, Scott, I think how, the other thing is, how do we talk about the experience of those who are not going to get it, which probably did the right thing? Yeah. So how let do me make that a story. I want to I want to remind folks we have a few more minutes with Gonzalo and then Daniel Lawrence is going to join us so please get your questions into the chat and I do have one here uh, looks like from uh, Tiago Sariva can you talk a little bit more about the intersection of the current political situation in Chile and the response to the epidemics so we were talking about that a little bit before but um, yeah. yeah yeah I mean it's it's uh, for instance I do think that and this is my hypothesis I don't have enough information but based on what I know. I mean, the politics of the Minister of Interior and the politics of the Minister of Health is all about ideology. <laughs> who is in charge at the top, um, who talks to whom, that kind of thing. And so it's interesting because in the middle ground, everybody talks to each other. You know, we coordinate, you coordinate. Right. But at the top, it's all about, it's a very hierarchical because, you know, in some way they're thinking of it as an emergency and it becomes militarized. So here, clearly, you have this difficulty which in some way is similar to the dynamics between the governors in the United States and the White House, where you might have some, you know, that they, they will, they would, I mean, those governors are listening to their mayors and they're having conversations and some of them actually doesn't really matter if they're Republicans or Democrats. Um, you know, they're thinking about their, their voters. Exactly. <laughs> really, it's interesting. Um, and so I think that what that happens within the government here, you know, where, and so here actually it's interesting, the mayors have 
done the role of being the ones who been taking, they've been pushing together. They have a lot of powers. Mayors have a lot of power. Mayors are powerful um, in Chile at the, at the level of governors or, or in, they have, I mean, the- Well, governors here are not elected right. yet. We're going to have elections. So they, they do what the president does. I mean, they, you know, they're, they, they're under their jurisdiction, but not mayors. And so you have mayors who, from the Communist Party to the very right wing, sitting together, making decisions. I mean, they're writing letters, they're pushing resources. They right. have resources too, so, yeah. Right. Now, there's one other thing I want to get to, um, Gonzalo, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about it. You're an artist who... <laughs> uh, you're an extraordinary artist, actually. And I just wonder if you say a little bit about that in these times, um, yeah. you know, the kind of work yeah. that you're, that you're yeah. even making or thinking about and, um, so, yeah, so I paint it's, right an it's an individual sort of work and I haven't done much since this all began, but I've been working on a graphic novel with an illustrator and we've been keeping the protagonist not we haven't been showing our the, what we have. We have a few chapters because we're tr still looking for money. So you don't supposed to spread out. I mean, there's a lot of money. There was not, you know, you cannot participate in, 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 in proposals if you do that. But we decided to go ahead with it. And we've been creating some imagery around this um, related to, we just did it today with, you know, a version in English and Italian and French and in Spanish and, and so like basically directed to kids. So we are trying to use art as a way of helping kids and children and also adults to have this conversation as you and probably everybody here right. in this audience know, people don't want to talk about risk. It, it, it's one of those things that it's sort of like, but now is the time. So <laughs> we need to it use is. the opportunity to, to speak about, it. I mean, in terms of, I think that um, this is all very confusing. I mean, I'm confused myself. I'm a trained public health person. And to be honest with you, it's, it's hard to understand the numbers. Hmm. It's, it's hard to untangle what is happening, even when you have a lot of information. So I, I find art as a way of, you know, being able to, let me show you something before, before you stop with me. So I painted this sometime, some, I don't know, you see it, <laughs> sort of weeks ago. And, it, it intends to, to, to tell you what happens to sand when people just, just drive on it and they destroy the environment. So, it's, yeah. you know, I can find you an article and explain to you, but you show it to some people and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's the tire and what it does and those are organisms. And, you know, so I'll figure out how to think yeah. about this. I Thank you on. for sharing that. I think because I think also, um, certainly I'm not an epidemiologist, and so these numbers, I try to parse them and make sense of them as best I can. And I turn to experts to help me understand. It's just what you said, there's so such an array of numbers and it's hard, I think, for a lot of us to, to know which ones to value and which ones not. And I'm a historian, so I go looking for historical parallels, but sometimes yeah. those fail me. Um, you know, looking to other modes of expression to find a connection with people in, in scary times is just really important. And so thanks for sharing that just bit of insight. And I think we want to come back to another call at some point where we talk a little bit more about the arts and these times. I, I posted something earlier today on Twitter. I was uh, scrolling through, actually it was New York Times front page from the weekend. 
Mm -hmm. It was a picture from this series they did of these uh, empty places in Europe. And did you see oh, the yeah. one of the Milan City Hall? I saw the one on, on religion, the column on religion oh, today. Amazing. Yeah, like the, they had the Milan City Hall with the red chairs set out. And yeah. my first thought was, wow, this is a, they were already making a memorial. This is really moving fast. But it wasn't. Right. It was just social distance seating for people to sit and the chairs were empty. Yeah. And yeah. I think you know, I you know, it's interesting. I don't know. You see, I go, I I receive the Nature newsletter every day, and they often have very good articles that you know they select and they curate. And there's today there's one on a list of books around um, pandemics, um, which you know maybe some of them you know, but there's a very a very nice book around um, what is called the Spanish virus. It wasn't Spanish, as you know, it was the U.S. Sure. virus, but. Whatever, that's another story. I mean, <laughs> another the scientists in his, we, the guys in Spain in Spain some, and then they name it the Spanish yeah, virus. Yeah, um, yeah. But how how we unfold the different stories, and I think that, and how in a way we discuss the same thing. We forget stuff. I mean, we we forget um, when when we were in very in a very similar place. Gonzalo, I want to thank you so much for joining us, and I think we'll we'll try to have you back in the in the coming weeks. And good luck with everything that's going on there. Appreciate thank you. it. I'll stay here to listen. Okay. going to um, now turn to our second uh, guest in the call today, Daniel Lawrence, who's a researcher and scientific research coordinator at the Disaster Research Unit at the Freie Universität in Berlin. And uh, Daniel has conducted research in Germany, India, Japan, South Korea, Sierra Leone, Portugal, and Greece. His research interests include various social science issues in the context of disasters. He's in the right place. Uh, for this discussion, and he looks at humanitarian emergencies. He has a research project ongoing about the role of domestic disaster management and the international humanitarian aid crisis, the refugee crisis that um, has unfolded in Europe in recent years. So Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. I wonder if you could, um, just like Gonzalo did, can you ground us a little bit in what's happening in Germany right now? Oh, yes, I, I can at least try. Things moved so fast the last day, so I tried to keep, to keep up with it. So I think right now we have like 29,000 cases going up to 30,000 cases right now. And um, yes, since the last two weeks, a lot of things happened parallel here. Um, so basically, since the WHO called this a pandemic, a lot of things happened on the political level. Uh, we saw the first address of the nation uh, by Angela Merkel uh, and our president uh, addressed the nation too. And the borders closed down in the last week. Uh, Bavaria declared a disaster situation. And in the last couple of days, discussions have mainly been around like yeah, curfews, curfews too, uh, uh, which are now in place, but they are more like uh, a ban of gatherings of 
people outside their houses. So, so people are, are allowed to go out uh, to buy groceries, um, yeah, to do sports, to, the, uh, to go to hospitals, things like that, but not in large groups. And this is something that is really yeah, in, in the public discourse right now. So how long this can go, how long people will take this. Uh, yeah, what are the social effects of these measures? Yeah, like this. And this is what is currently, I think, debated a lot here. Gonzalo was telling us a story of, of Chile that's, you know, they've been going through some really radical uh, protests and against their government recently and challenges to the central government. Can you sketch out for us a little bit what the situation is in Germany in terms of disaster governance? Is it a strong central system or is it a decentralized system? It's a decentralized system. It's, okay. it's states that are responsible for the um, disaster situations. Uh, the central state is only responsible for the case of civil defense. So as long as this doesn't happen, so it's the state that are in charge. And this is something that also, and also with the, with the pandemic right now, um, puts the, the state in, in charge, which means that there are also a lot of like coordination uh, is going on between the, the states and the central government about the measures and how to align in a way that it doesn't get too confusing for the general public. So to give you an example, and in some states you were allowed to go out with a family, in other states it's only two people uh, that can go out together, in some states people can exercise, in some places we had actually the first curfews ever in Germany, and so the last weekend, there were a lot of discussions and telephone conferences going on in order to have like a more coordinated approach uh, to inform the public what are now the, the rules all over Germany. Can you generalize a little bit about um, how local government is making those decisions? I mean, in the United States, we had a few holdout states, mostly in the South, uh, who didn't uh, follow the more aggressive procedures of, let's say, California uh, or New York. Is there a similar sort of breakdown in Germany in more rural areas or areas in the former East that are less likely to follow the kinds of advice that comes from the central government, or it doesn't work that way in Germany? I think it doesn't work that way in this situation because we have like several clusters uh, where the virus spread more rapidly and these were also the states that discussed measures more often. And then perhaps what is a slightly different is, is the case of Bavaria who always <laughs> tries to be like an exception from the other states. So, so they were uh, having uh, like, like the curfews rather early. They were declaring a disaster last week in order to have like a more state-led approach uh, to the situations so this is something we have but but this is not that works with the east-west uh, or, or the north-south uh, it's more that the Bavarian case that that is a rather special here I would say. You know one of the things that uh, I often hear when I'm in discussions with people about climate change of course is that well wouldn't it be nice to I'm talking about the United States here wouldn't it be nice to live in a country where uh, if a group of scientists get together and agree on something that it can actually uh, form policy. Um, and, and Germany is always trotted out and say, well, you, couldn't we be more German in this regard? I mean, is this, is this what you're seeing, a sort of general societal acceptance of the public health measures that are being put forward there? Can you generalize about that? I think in, in general, yes, measures are accepted, I would say. 
But this also, I think, has to do with the way they were introduced in the last couple of weeks. So as I said, this has like, like a history here. Um, so we saw the first press conferences of the Federal Minister for Health uh, together with, uh, with experts, uh, with the, the president of the, our so-called uh, our CDC mainly, and one of the virologists from, from the Charité, which is the biggest hospital in Berlin, and I think also in Europe. And they were presenting like the more basic scientific facts and then uh, yeah, talked about this. And this, I think, created at least some kind of common knowledge about the situation. And so perhaps people are a bit more prepared about the measures that were taken and accept them more. Because they did dis disagree a lot. They had some kind of discourse, but at the same time, I think the methods were rather clear. And I think nobody really uh, spoke up. Uh, or no other experts really, there were some, they were disregards in some respect, but not at large. So, so there was, there was a lot of like, um, communication going on about the issue, but not in a way that really, I think was too confusing in the way where the whole situation might go. And mm -hmm. I think this created like a more general preparedness for these kind of measures. But still, these measures are rather drastic for the people that they didn't experience something like this. And this is also disturbing, for sure. So, a question here from uh, Tiago Sariva about um, the variability of the cases across Europe. Why are Germany's numbers low, do you think, compared to Spain or Italy? Uh, this might have several reasons. Um, I think one reason is that um, like there, there was a cluster in Italy, it seems, uh, where a lot of, um, where the virus spread a lot before they actually uh, detected it and were able to follow up. So it is said, and I'm not, not an expert on this, that, that, they that they did a lot of testing in Germany, so they might, be, might have been able to identify the cases quite early. This is something they say also when you look at the mortality uh, rate in Germany, it's rather low. And, and they say it might be the reason that they tested a lot. So they have a lot of cases and not a lot of undetected cases, which then limits the, the rate. I think this is something that we see. And perhaps also, but I can't say how it was in the, the other states uh, where there was a lot of public uh, discussion going on in the last couple of weeks about the virus and the measures. So I think this might also be something that might be important here. So you think the, and the borders are closed? Yes, the, the borders are closed right now. And, and most of the borders within Europe are closed right now. So this happened like yeah, last week and then the week before. So there was a question from Jason that, um, picks up some of the issues I was getting at earlier. How are the right-wing groups, which have been ascendant in Germany in the last couple of years, how are they reacting to the pandemic? I think that it's not homogeneous how they are reacting, but I think at least in the, the right spectrum, you could first see people saying, this is just a flu, don't, don't panic about it. But this changed last week, and so some of the more prominent uh, 
faces from, from the right-wing spectrum, they, they are now more or less accusing the government of not doing enough. And I think this, this oh. shift also um, made it difficult for them to find a position and, and to really uh, use this case. So, so they are still trying to do it. Like they were advocating for closing the borders, uh, saying we should do this the whole time. They were um, also criticizing that we shipped like masks and, and uh, protective equipment to China in January and things like that. But at least uh, from my perspective, it seems they can't really get through with their message right now because yeah, other persons are much more in the focus and it's not so easy for them to, to use their, their general arguments they make here in this case and to, to come through. So, so this is something we haven't seen this for, for a couple of, of years, uh, that there's a situation that cannot, or at least right now, is not used or exploited by right-wing groups uh, in, in a large way. But they can still make the they're consistent with their point that the borders should be closed and borders should be policed. I mean, this is lining up with the right wing argument in the United States. And I think this is where this is going in the next few months for sure. Yeah, it is. And I think it will be, uh, at, especially if, if we lose a little, try to lose uh, the, the measures and, and try to think about how to open the borders. And, and then at that point, I think there, there, they might, uh, will try to, to capture the discourse again and, and really say, no, we should keep, uh, keep it closed in order to, to be safe and or to don't have the problem in the future again and things like that. So, so th this might come up, but at the moment, I would say they don't have much to offer right now how to, how to actually deal with the situation. They are just saying we should do more, but they can't really explain what more would mean uh, for them right now, now as the borders are already closed and now as, as the response is going on. Let me get to a question here from Kim Fortune. Uh, where are different publics in Germany getting their information and which information sources are most trusted and maybe which ones are, are not as trustworthy? Um, so there is the, this German CDC, so, so that they publish a lot of data, they publish a lot um, about the situation. And then uh, when it comes to the numbers, it's often John Hopkins uh, too here because they, they update their numbers more, uh, more often than our CDC. Um, and then what is also interesting, there's one uh, virologist, I mentioned him earlier, the, who works for, for the Charité, for the hospital. He has also a podcast, I think, every morning in the radio. People listen a lot to this. Uh, I think these are some of the, uh, the sources people use. And then there's a lot, lot in the media. There's, it's the, the most prominent topic we have all over the media. There are a special, special uh, TV um, shows about this and how, how explaining how things are going. So I think people really try to use this kind of situ uh, information also from like, like the public authorities here. And I think this is the most trusted uh, information right now. And you don't see much, I mean, you get the, the conspiracy theories for sure. Uh, you find them if you want to search for them, but they don't really 
get through in the, the public discourse, I would say right now. So there's much more like solid information coming out. So I, I hate to put you in a position to, to give us the German situation and then the whole EU situation, but here we go. I, I want to, because coming back to this issue of the variability in the numbers between Germany and Italy and Spain, um, what kind of tensions is that putting in EU politics right now? Is it acceptable to have uh, one country in the EU with low numbers and other countries with accelerating numbers? I mean, I, I help us understand this a little bit as an EU-wide issue. Um, the problem here is that it's not only national states within the EU, but also the EU itself that tries to to like find a position here. So okay. usually it's the member states that are in charge here. And, and we see a lot of national responses by the member states, also with, with the closure of the borders and things like that. At the same time, the EU tries to, to help out where they can, but they don't really have like a capacity actually to do it. Also, they don't have uh, their own health uh, care facilities. They don't have like a lot of equipment they, they can can uh, give to the different uh, nation states. So this puts them in a difficult position. They try to do it. They also try to help countries like Italy. Uh, Italy um, activated this the so-called EU civil protection mechanism, mm. which but is again something that is only facilitated by the EU. So uh, it's up to the member states, the other member states, whether they contribute to this. So. Um, Italy didn't receive much or, or nothing here because others were just keeping their, their stockpiles. So, so this, this is clearly a problem within the EU now with, with the national uh, states responding to this. At the same time, the EU itself tries to, to build up capacity here. They had already had some initiatives before the uh, corona situation and they now try to expand it in order to like get large stockpiles of, of protective equipment, masks and things like that in order to be able to help out member states and to, to, um, yeah, to help the member states that suffer the most right now. So this is something that we can see. Uh, also, there were calls from like EU officials to like strengthen crisis management on the EU level, which is also something that has been going on for for years, the EU trying to get more um, capacity here and, and more power in this regard, but they didn't get it so far. So, so right now they're more well, side of things. Well, let's tie it back to the refugee crisis because it seems like there's some very similar issues here. How will individual member states react? And individually, they have their own politi political you know, issues within different countries, according to their, their politics, their culture, um, their you know, wealth or lack of it. And then there's the EU response or, or how well the EU as a body can respond. Do you see parallels in the pandemic to the refugee crisis? With this regard, yes. So, so that, that was more or less the, the same situation. I mean, it was much more political uh, because of the involvement of refugees. But at the same time, when it comes to like overwhelmed capacities within the different nation states, it's more or less the same. And we also saw the situation that the EU civil protection mechanism didn't help in 2015 uh, because like states were overwhelmed and would, don't, would not contribute for other states. So we saw this. 
Um, what we saw too in 2016 then was that the EU developed their own instrument in order to like um, do something in the situation that we had with Greece. So uh, remember in, when all the states closed down their borders in 2015 and then in the beginning of 2016, um, Greece became uh, the country where refugees would arrive in the EU, but they would not be able to travel further. Uh, so to, to states like Germany, Sweden, and so on. So, so they were basically trapped there. And so in order to help out the Greek states uh, with the humanitarian situation over there, the EU developed like a new instrument. It's called the Emergency Support Instrument, which allowed to uh, have the yeah, humanitarian aid within the EU. So, so this is not like member states helping each other out but rather the EU funding humanitarian operations within uh, the EU and within member states. And so this happened in Greece for three years and the instrument is still there and it's, uh, you, you could use it for a pandemic situation. The, uh, the, it's, it's made for this too, the, the, this kind of law they have, but they didn't really talk about this so far, whether they should actually use it at least um, not not publicly so but this could be something that could happen in the situation that the EU uh, tries will try to use this situation in order to address uh, the most severe needs uh, in specific countries for example you were very involved in research efforts in the midst of the humanitarian crisis as it was playing out in Germany um, and I think it's worth sort of lingering on that a little bit more. Do you, do you think that there will be similar sort of political um, pushback after the pandemic is over if the numbers are higher in some parts of Europe than they are in, in other parts of Europe? Is this going to exacerbate existing cultural tensions? It could be. So I think it's it's really open right now where this is going. So, so what we right now see, but, but still um, the numbers of people in intensive care are not that high in, in countries like Germany. So, so now, nowadays we see that Germany takes over patients from, from Italy, from France, in order to, to help uh, them uh, to care for these people. So, so we see right now more some of these um, more sort of dairy acts, but it could also be if we still have like large clusters of, of people infected in certain places that this might also yeah, create tensions and also the, the longer closure of borders or, or things like that. So I think it's highly, uh, highly open how this will, will play out because we don't know where, where this is going. So I think what about what's happening in the refugee? Do you have research contacts that can give you any information what the concerns are within refugee uh, camps right now, that the pandemic could spread quickly through those, those camps? Yes, um, this, is, this is very much feared, uh, especially when we look at the sit situation in Greece. Um, the, the camps, the situation, the, the hygiene situation, the health situation has been horrible for, for years. And especially uh, last year, a lot of new arrivals came to, uh, to the Greek islands. And so the camps are there very overcrowded. Uh, um, 
at the same time, as I said, like uh, the, the health conditions, hygiene conditions are really, really poor. And there are already cases on some of the islands. So they really fear that uh, this could spread to, to the camps and this would be devastating, I guess. Um, and also, but what we see now parallel is that, but it's also something that started earlier since last summer, since there has been a new government in charge in Greece, uh, which is much more stricter on the refugee issue, really trying to, to uh, keep the numbers low and things like that. So they try to have like not open camps, but closed camps with the military and things like that. And so now you can see that, that the coronavirus is used in order to, to enforce this, in order to, to close down the camps, to have like a more military, military role on this in this and then yeah being able to to be much stricter on this issue now this is one of the if you're familiar with the historian jacob remus's work and he's written about um disasters in the united states and in in canada and you know after the salem fire earlier in the 20th century there's the same kind of issue about when you have uh, it wasn't refugees but when you have disaster victims in a camp that sometimes the state uses that as a moment of extraordinary force to accomplish things they would like to anyway. It's a, it's another excuse for policing. I wonder yeah, definitely. And I, I think here also with uh, with the situation at the, the Greek-Turkish border that has there have been a lot of tensions uh, in the last couple of weeks. So now this is overshadowed by, by the whole coronavirus. Yeah. Um, issue but there have been a lot of tensions uh, and I think everything every argument that is there in order to be more stricter and to to push a, a certain agenda here uh, will be used in that way but I think it's not only the situation uh, we see in Greece I think it's also the situation in the Middle East with the much larger refugee camps there and with the the whole humanitarian aid that uh, now needs to find a way how to deal with the situation actually how to how to deliver aid uh, in times of a global pandemic i think it's one of the major problems uh, where there are not really answers right now on the table i think it's showing us again the, this incapacity we seem to have to be able to plan well for compound disasters uh, events that are you know slow processes playing out with then sort of event shocks and we just haven't got great models for how to how to manage that. I want to get to one uh, last question here from Jason Ludwig. He's asking about the vaccine situation and reminding us that the Trump administration tried to persuade a German firm to get involved in developing a COVID-19 vaccine. Do you, do you know much about what the vaccine research situation is in Germany? Is it as... Uh, 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 politically fraught and cumbersome of a topic in Germany as it is in the United States? No, it, it wasn't. I mean, it was in the media here too, uh, that, that Trump tried to convince uh, the firm to, to move to the U.S. Um, but they were, the firm was reassured by, by the politicians that, that they uh, will give them a good research and work environment. And I think... I don't know whether it's the the owner of the company or whether he has only some some um, some parts of the company, but but he also announced publicly that that he wants to to stay in Germany and also wants to make this something that is available to all people. So 
what all people means and in this respect we will see how how the the vaccine once will be distributed and who will receive it first that will remain an issue but at least uh he said that he would not um be in favor of such approaches where some nations really try to uh, just get the vaccines for their own. So, so this was something, and it was something also. Uh, I think he received some. He's also involved in, in football, and, and so he was highly criticized there before. And people were really angry about him because he put so much money into football, and they were you know, like really in the stadium. They they were uh, really shouting bad things about him. And right now, he's now the mom one of the good guys again, because he's, uh, he's the one that now says, no, no, I'm, I'm doing the right thing here. I want to develop a vaccine for everybody and things like that. So this is also some of the part of the story, at least in Germany. Interesting, not selling out to Trump as a way to uh, win the, the loyalty of the German people. Interesting. Yeah, at least for some football fans. At yeah. least football fans, yeah. Um, Daniel, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today and I hope you won't mind if we come back to you on a later call to because you know, obviously this is a slow disaster to be playing out for for months there across Europe and particularly to talk about this issue that you raised which I think is a crucial one about how individual member states in the EU are going to cope and then but then also the EU itself um, as a governmental body so thanks thanks a million for being on the COVID calls I want to remind everybody that tomorrow and every weekday we will be here on the calls using the same link at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern time, and tomorrow we have Andy Revkin uh, to talk to, and we're very much looking forward to that. And uh, we will see you in the meantime on Twitter and see everybody tomorrow at 5 Eastern. Thanks. Bye.